0: Happy Friday, Freckled Foodie family. Today, we are joined by Nora Maxwell, who is a biracial activist helping white and non black POC be better allies across her Instagram platform. She has fully changed the way of using Instagram. Honestly, I have never seen it done like this. She has created such an incredibly educational, Version of Instagram stories and highlights, and it's really remarkable to consume. She works full time at the Rivet School, leading their growth and admission team. They are focused on building a college experience designed around the needs of real students and aiming to build a new model of higher education by decreasing the time to a degree, increasing on time graduation, and unlocking economic mobility. She really has created this like Instagram activism with her page that was at one point personal. And then did one quick change and now she's just going with it and I'm so here for it. Her highlights are incredibly beneficial in teaching lessons for those looking to learn more on their anti-racism educational journey and how to act in allyship. So absolutely check her out on Instagram. It's at Nor J. Maxwell. All of that will be in the show notes. I think today's episode is incredibly informative and educational. It might bring up some white fragility for you. If that's the case, keep listening don't stop. Um, That's part of the work that you need to be doing. So I hope you guys enjoy. Obviously, let me know your thoughts. And without further ado, here is Nora. Nora, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so
1: much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited to talk today.
0: Thank you, and thank you for bearing with we've had a lot of technical difficulties. This (laughs) week has just like not been my motherfucking week whatsoever, so I'm happy this is hopefully going to work, and I want to start by saying I know Alexis listens to the show, so thank you, Alexis, (laughs) for bringing Nora into my life. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, other listeners, um, Alexis Barber, who's been on the show before, has a podcast, Too Smart for This Pod, which I love. I was her, I think, actually first guest on, so you can go listen to that episode, And Nora's episode, I will link in the show note, was a great conversation. And I remember listening to it and texting Alexis being like, I need to get her on my show. Do you think you can just connect us?
1: (laughs) I love it. Her show is really, that was a fun, that was a fun conversation that we had. It's really fun.
0: Um, I guess I like popped her quote unquote podcast podcast. Cherry, I actually hate that I just used that term, but whatever. <laughs> um, that's like so vile, and I haven't said it in so long. But she was like, Can, "Would you be my first guest? You were the first podcast I've ever been on." I was like, "I'm fucking honored.
1: It's a great show." I love her. She's wonderful, and She's so great. is her podcast, and so is her platform too. I've really loved following her Instagram. It's sort of evolved over the past few weeks, months. Absolutely, a hundred percent. So,
0: Alexis, we love you. Um, to kick things off, how would you define success?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, It's something that I think about a lot right now as somebody early on in their career. Um, I think oh, so so many things that could be said, but I, I think that when I think about how I define success, a lot of it has to do with sort of how closely I'm aligned to my grander vision for my purpose in life and also my sort of moral compass and values. Um, and so success to me looks like being as close as I can <clears throat> with as little discrepancy between who I want to be, where I want to be one day and what I'm doing right now to get myself closer to those things. Um, I think that definition for me feels the most accurate because something that I've sort of learned and grappled with over the past few years is that people's have obviously such wide different definitions of success and have different value systems, different moral compasses, different visions for a successful life. Um, and I think at times I could be like, "How? why would you be working towards that or be prioritizing that? But I really do think that if you can make the gap between where you want to be, who you want to be, and what you're doing right now as little as possible, um, I think it, that's that's the best and most consistent and accurate way to define it.
0: I've never in a million years thought of it in that way as like who I want to be and closing that gap, but it's so true. And I think something you touched on is something that I have recently been focusing more on of like, how do I want to not act, but like, who am I personally? Cause that does tie into success and like, what is the impact of the work you're doing having on you and others? Um, and I know you didn't use those specific words, but i that's kind of how I take it as. Mm-hmm. And I think the work you're doing is incredibly impactful. So I would love to dive into your career. And also, you know, now you have created this Instagram as a side, I would you call it a hobby that's just kind of transformed?
1: Yeah, I, that's a good way to define it. Not something I set out to do explicitly, but it has transformed into like a, a pretty meaningful and a large t- part of my, my time and day. So yeah. what do you do
0: full-time? And then we'll dive
1: into the Instagram. Yeah. So full-time, I work as the Director of Growth and Admissions at Rivet School. Um, I've been here for about two years now in this role. And so we are a nonprofit <clears throat> based in California. We were started in the Bay Area, but now are continuing to expand. And we help working adults earn a bachelor's degree. So specifically folks who have been underserved by higher education in the past. So black and Latinx folks, people from low income backgrounds, first generation college students, etc. And so we provide a lot of different resources along with a different type of degree program to support people who have lots going on in their life outside of just earning a degree to earning a degree and unlocking economic opportunity and success with that newfound bachelor's degree.
0: So already you're doing very impactful work in your career. I think that's safe to say. Um, That sounds like an incredible program. I will definitely link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested in learning more or like getting involved in any way, if they're California based, I don't know, charitable donations, any of that type of information, that'll all be in the show notes. So it's clear that you're already doing impactful work in your career aspect of your life from being a consumer of your social media over the past, I guess, month and a half, whenever your episode released with Alexis, that's when I found you. I have thoroughly enjoyed the way that you are helping white and non-black people of color act in allyship and continue their anti-racism educational journey because I think you do it in such an incredible way of creating digestible but also approachable and very meaningful and educational content and for anyone who's like curious you have to go check out her instagram obviously after this episode but the way you use your story highlights like it's it's as if i'm attending a webinar <laughs> but you're i'm sure reaching a demographic of people age-wise who would
1: not be leaving the platform to go do that type of work. Does yes. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that has been, like I said, I didn't explicitly set out to create this platform, but I created a story on Instagram in response to Blackout Tuesday. So when everybody was posting those black squares, everybody being like white people and non-black POC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just created an Instagram story. I had seen people use it sort of creatively in the past where you can make like words appear, you know, you can set it up in a way that feels like kind of fun and interactive and I did that and I think it really resonated and it's kind of interesting because the way we use Instagram, we like, you know, sometimes we absentmindedly click through stories, we swipe along, we check for new stories from people that we like, that we follow, and I think it's kind of fun because it's like these pretty, I mean, as much as is allowed in a small space of an Instagram story, like, like you said, pretty like nuanced and complex topics being discussed that sort of pop up alongside, you know, your friend's picture of her brunch or a picture of a dog. And all of a sudden, there's like this little mini lesson that also appears. I think there's constraints of using Instagram and social media to teach about um, anti-racism and allyship. Obviously, sometimes people are just on there to detach and tune out. And it's not always the best way to reach people. But I think it is one way to do it. And it has, I think, has been pretty successful so far in doing so.
0: Absolutely. And I agree. Obviously, there are some people and, you know, this is, this is conversation. These are conversations I've had over my DMs when like I talk mm-hmm. about these topics. People are like, you know, well, I come to Instagram to escape. Like, why are you talking right, about right. politics so much? Um, like, as if, you know, they should tell me what to do with my platform um, <laughs> blows my mind. But again, like I've realized that some people do go to Instagram to escape. However, the response I always give to that, which I'm sure is something I would think you would agree with, is the people who are trying to escape, quote unquote, this, these news are white people who have the privilege of even escaping mm-hmm. these types of conversations. Mm-hmm. So that's usually my first response of like the fact that you're even able to escape any of this is the first type of privilege that you should really Absolutely. acknowledge. Um, but I'm curious if we can rewind just a bit. And you mentioned Blackout Tuesday sparked all of this. What were your stories? Was this your personal Instagram, like an everyday person?
1: Yeah. If you scroll back far enough, you'll find like all my old pictures. Like it was just a personal Instagram. <laughs> so yes. And and on Blackout Tuesday, I just posted a story that was to my friends and family that followed me. I had like, you know, a thousand followers and um, it was a story specifically on white fragility, because I was noticing how people who were being called out for posting the black square, which was a sign of solidarity, but actually sort of backfired because a lot of people use the Black Lives Matter hashtag, clog the feeds, kind of a disaster. And so a lot of black activists, ed- educators, just everyday people were saying, please stop doing this, delete the square take a step back. And a lot of people's white fragility was triggered. So sort of that feeling of being called out on your unintentional racism that can trigger all these different emotions, guilt and anger and annoyance and embarrassment. And so I was like, this is kind of a cool teaching moment to say, you're probably experiencing white fragility. If you're a white person today, this is what it is. This is how you can combat it. This is why it's dangerous. Um, And people just like, really responded well to it and again it was like my friends and family but people were sharing the story across their platforms Um, and so I continued to sort of make it in a reactionary sense so an event would happen obviously so much happened this past summer I would create a story in response it would be shared around etc and then I sort of started to switch to a more proactive approach where I was choosing what to talk about in each story and and proactively creating that content.
0: So I think it's really like this whole blackout Tuesday thing is so interesting to me because I don't think anyone ever expected it to be as big of a oh my gosh yeah moment in so many educational ways. Um, I remember opening my phone and being very confused by seeing ten thousand black squares. Me too. Um, yep. <laughs> I even called my sister who was on like a social media break and I was like, you just need to open your phone because I can't explain to you what's happening right now. Um, And I think my issue with it as a white person was that it felt as if a lot of people, and I'm not trying to be accusatory, again, this sparks a lot of white fragility, but a lot of people were like, well, I posted a black square, I did my work and now racism is over, which is... Mm -hmm. Also like white saviorship as if like we could fix everything in like one day. Um, and then let's just move on. And I'm talking less about like the people in my, when I was on my personal account and like the people in my real life who I've obviously chosen to be close with people who I don't consider racist, but right. more so as a consumer of like influencer account, not that I'm saying these people are spewing racist things, but The fact that I felt they were posting black squares being like, well, I've used my platform in a positive way. And now I can either like go on to share normal content because I've addressed it. I just kind of felt like this easy out in my opinion. Um, And I'm glad that you took it as used it as an educational opportunity because I'm sure a lot of people found that very helpful because I think a lot of people had a lot of white fragility sparked in that moment. feelings that day. Yeah. So many feelings. I remember my mom even calling me and being like, I'm so confused. Should I be posting black? Like, am I not standing in solidarity? I'm like, no, you're, you don't need to post a black square. You actually (laughs) do work. Like you're doing work outside of Instagram. Like this is not what it is that needs to be done. So from there, your Instagram obviously has evolved as an mm-hmm. educational tool. I do think, even though we mentioned like some people are going to Instagram to quote unquote escape, I also think that, you know, not everyone is doing the added work of like signing up for webinars or courses. Right. Or, you know, I was in a workshop yesterday with someone who I deeply and fondly respect and has become a friend of mine, Dr. Akila Kaday. And we were in breakout rooms having conversations about like earned and unearned privilege and Mm -hmm. we were all kind of resonating. And I was like, but it's easy for all of us to resonate on this topic because we're five white women who have chosen to take time out of our day, buy a ticket for this event. Like we're obviously going to agree on these things because we're doing the work and not that I deserve any type of badge for going to these webinars, but I don't think everyone is going that extra step. And so that's why I do think Instagram is helpful using it as this educational tool, especially for younger generation that spends so much time on the app.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I hear all of that too. I think like that was one of the main problems with Blackout Tuesday was that I think it made people feel like they could check off a box and say, I did the right thing. So when I look back on this time, I'll feel like, yes, I was the, on the right side of history. I posted the black square. But what a lot of people actually were doing was saying, like, I'm I'm muting myself. You know, I, I'm, I'm not posting. And I think actually what happened is a lot of people logged off the platform that day because it was all black squares. Like, there was nothing but black squares. And it was like, no, the purpose is actually we need you to sort of mute yourself, but then tune in to the voices that are speaking right now that are really important to be listening to the black voices speaking about what is happening. And I think people were like post log off, like it's boring today. It's only black squares. Um, And then yeah, to your other point too, I think that is sort of, again, a tricky road to walk on posting on Instagram, because I think it is possible that people, you know, watch my stories or consume content from other black creators and educators and think like, okay, I've done enough. Like I've watched the story today. I've looked at the post. I've shared it to my story. And I feel like I've done something today, which you have, you've taken the step to learning more, educating yourself. That's one step. But a lot of what I try to focus on on my platform is moving from learning to doing. I also, I have like a series called from learning to doing in, in terms of allyship. And I think it can be easy at times to feel like learning in and of itself is allyship when I sort of push back on that. And I think learning is a necessary part of allyship, but it is not active allyship itself. And so you need to take what you've learned from the webinar, from Instagram, from other platforms, and go do something in real life with that. Um, And I think that's where people sometimes get tripped up or maybe don't have that connection between how do I take what I've learned and then use that to, to do Um, so yeah, definitely. I I totally agree with what you're saying in that regard.
0: Yeah. And I think when it comes to allyship, it's really interesting because, you know, someone once I forget who uh, many people have said this, but like, you cannot be a permanent ally. You can act in allyship, but like, you're going to fuck up no matter Mm -hmm. what type of ally you are, whether we're talking about, you know, race or gender or sexuality, like at Mm -hmm. some point you're going to fuck up. And that's why I. I prefer the term, like you've been using, acting and allyship. Um, But I also think that, again, like learning is the first step. And I think it's so important. But I do think a lot of, specifically, I can talk from my perspective, white people Mm -hmm. um, get caught in that from acting, from learning to acting, because I think it's part white fragility. um, Because again, like we've, been a part of a white supremacist system and we've benefited from that. And it's like, well, I can learn about all this, but do I really want to change it because I'm kind of benefiting here? um, Which is not the right mentality, but unfortunately it is for many. And then I also think it's the, like, I don't know what to do. So I'm frozen. Mm -hmm. And Part of that in between phase that I have found very beneficial, and I don't know if you're familiar with Rachel Ricketts, um, who's another anti-racism educator. She's awesome. No, I, haven't um, heard, I need to look into her. She's great. She just wrote a book called "Do Better," I believe is the title. I'm waiting for my copy to arrive. But part of her book, and similar to Layla F. Saad's Me and White Supremacy, Mm -hmm. is that it's active journaling. And so it's taking the learning, and this is what I have found incredibly beneficial in like the early stages of my educational allyship journey, is taking the learning and reflecting and like then moving forward from that to like, how can I put this into motion? Because then you're actually like taking time. You're not just reading and taking notes on something, but you're like reflecting on your own life and decisions you've made and things you've said. And it brings up a lot because I've done a lot of shit I'm not proud of when I Mm -hmm. reflect back on like my earlier years. But I do think that that's a good, I'm curious your opinion, because I do think that that's a good middle place to then be like, okay, how can I actually then, put something in motion from here.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, and sort of similar note of like one of the drawbacks of social media, but also just like sort of our fixation on the learning side of things, as opposed to the doing and acting, I think is that people consume so much and they feel like I need to consume more. Like that is how I will become a better ally is just consuming and consuming. So like following all the right people on Instagram, reading all the right books. Um, but like you're saying you need to take the time to process it and reflect on it and figure out what it means to you like put it in your own words words you could use to like have the conversation with your mom or with your neighbor who's not on social media like when people sort of only know the buzzy words because they saw like an infographic on it on instagram that's certainly the first step you're learning about a concept that's new to you and then the next step like you're saying is reflecting on it how does it show up in your life? How would you talk about this to somebody who was not familiar with the topic and I think that those moments of processing and reflection are for one, just absolutely crucial for two lead to more clarity around what types of action take that you can take that would make sense to you and your life. Um, So yeah, I like the idea of sort of framing it as like uh, a journey of like consumption and then reflection before I think before action.
0: Because I think back on like, for instance, when you know, the murder of George Floyd that sparked a lot of this for a lot Mm -hmm. of people. Um, And, you know, right around Blackout Tuesday and all this, I think back on my actions and I feel a little iffy about certain things I did because I jumped right into my typical type of personality of like, I need to organize everything I possibly can. And when I talked about that, I was doing, trying to learn more. I then got questions of like, well, what are you reading? So I created Mm -hmm. this blog post of like, All of these resources, which at the time I was like, this is probably going to be so helpful for people. But now reflecting back, I'm like, obviously all the resources I was including were those of Black creators because it's not my journey to be lead. Like I shouldn't be the lead educator because I can't speak to any type of this experience, but I was just trying to organize it for my community. But when I reflect back, I'm like, I almost feel like I was so trying to focus people on learning and less Doing mm-hmm. that maybe it stunted people's. Jer- I don't know. I, I'm still trying to really unpack the whole thing, but I'm curious for you. Obviously, we've been talking mainly about how like white people can act in allyship or non-black people of color, and we talked about how it's a privilege to quote-unquote escape. It's also a privilege to decide that you want to learn about racism, mm-hmm. um, because we've never, as a white person, I've never faced racism. Um, So obviously that's not the case for you as a biracial Mm -hmm. Black identifying woman. When did this journey, I guess, or like when did this really become a forefront for you where you were like aware of this system?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think like there's sort of, I kind of think of it in two phases. Like the one phase is, and I was actually just talking with one of my coworkers about this yesterday is I feel like I became aware of my race at a really young age. And I, I think, obviously I can't speak, but I do think that that typically happens for black people and people of color earlier in life than it does for white people. The first time you are aware, made aware by somebody else or by a situation of your race, and and how that will affect how the world perceives you. So that happened, yeah, and that happened at a really young age for me. So I'm I'm biracial, so my dad is black, my mom is white, and so there's an element of blackness to it, and there's also the element of, like, the mixed experience. And so there's a lot of just, like, questions and weird scenarios you're put into as somebody who is not white and at times is racially ambiguous. And so, um, like, questions posed to me as, like, a five-year-old, you know, um, questions my mom got a white woman out with three black children with like black hair, you know, and dark skin and wondering, like, are you their nanny? Like, who, who are these kids? You know, are they yours? Um, just like comments that make you have to turn inwards and say, like, obviously people are going to consider my race when they see me. And in some cases, and I would say many cases, it's the first people are, thing people are going to consider when they see me. So that happened early. And I think that's the case for many people. The second phase, I would say, is starting to actually be able to put, like, the words to these experiences and to extrapolate these experiences into larger concepts. So, like, oh, what I experienced was a microaggression, or that was racism, or I live in a white supremacist society. Like, these things are not, that's not language I had, obviously, when I first encountered my race. And those are words and concepts I started to learn about. I would say probably early college, really, was when I started to have those conversations Um, that happened, like, in the classroom with classes I was taking. It happened outside of the classroom with groups I was a part of. Um, And I think the journey has really continued. I was a part of a number of different, like, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives when I was in college. And then post-grad, obviously, have been doing a lot of things in my professional life, too, uh, from DEI trainings to, like, I'm on the Anti-Racism and Equity Task Force at Rivet School where I work. Um, And so I think it's really helpful and empowering in my experience as a Black woman to be able to put the language identify the concepts behind all these experiences I've had because it makes it just feel like I'm not alone in these experiences, that they are universal and that they can be explained by some of these larger systems of oppression that are at play. Um, So I think that that's what I try to bring to my Instagram is the intersection of sort of the more academic side of things, you know, the, the, the language and the vocab and all of that with my personal experience that I've actually experienced in my life. And I think I have a particularly unique perspective as a biracial person because I do have proximity to whiteness in a lot of ways Um, and oftentimes like physically like half my family is white. I grew up in a pretty white neighborhood went to school with a lot of white people so like have observed very keenly the racism throughout my life and can speak very um, explicitly about what I've seen. Um, especially in times that people didn't recognize that I was black and made comments that they wouldn't have made around a black person that wasn't biracial. Um, So I try to like bring, yeah, that perspective of sort of being a fly on the wall in a lot of scenarios combined with some of the more academic, the academic side of this um, in like the Instagram stories and the posts that I make.
0: And I think that's the perfect approach Uh, from a consumer standpoint, because I think it's very important to try to learn the vocabulary because again, you know, I still get very nervous having these conversations in public settings such as Mm -hmm. this, because I realize there's a large possibility I could fuck up. And that's fine if I do, like I'm going to fuck up. Um, But again, for me, like learning the correct terminology has been very important when I'm trying to get my feelings across because I did not experience this. So I don't have Mm -hmm. nearly the personal anecdotes to pull from. So like it helps to then have the terminology to use appropriately. But I think from a consumer standpoint, you know, similarly to like, if I was reading a textbook, like I'm not, I I have a learning disability of reading comprehension. So I check out immediately. Like I just can't process the information. Mm -hmm. So when it's given to me in such a formal setting, no matter what, topic we're talking about, I have a very hard time processing it. But if someone's then providing personal context, like those are the things that Mm -hmm. I then remember. So I can say from my personal experience, it's been incredibly beneficial because hearing people's personal stories, not only I think stick out more to people, but also a white person is then hopefully willing to and able to imagine putting themselves in Mm -hmm. those shoes and realize that like, I was having this conversation yesterday with someone. White privilege, for instance, is something that so many people get so fragile around and they hate to admit it. Like, it it baffles my mind. Um, And, you know, they feel like it's taken from all the... Like, if, if you admit that you hold white privilege, then you're saying you've never worked hard for anything in your life. Right. And I think for someone to consume content like yours, it... Hopefully makes them realize that white privilege is less about what has happened to you and more like what has not happened to you. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. that's where the personal anecdotes really play a large role and help because, you know, in me having conversations with people in my life who are doing the like, but I've worked really hard combat, it's then easier for me to be like, you have worked hard. I'm not taking away from that. But did you ever face X, Y, Z? No, mm-hmm. because you are white. Like it's less about what you face and more about what you didn't face.
1: Yeah, and yeah that's a really good way to phrase
0: it. That's, I think, what's been the most beneficial f- for me when conversing with people in my personal life and trying to get points across. So having personal anecdotes from educators like yourself is very helpful in A, like realizing that, but then B putting context to it when having a conversation as a white person. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you have obviously this is like a side thing for you, which I respect the fuck out of because I was also trying to do an Instagram while I was working in the corporate world, and it is a lot of work a lot. to do both. <laughs> it's um, a lot. Yeah. It's so much and you're doing way more impactful work than I was doing. I was like posting my overnight oats recipes. So it's <laughs> even more, but I'm curious and you might not have an answer for this, but like where would you ideally seeing your page evolving to?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question that I'm like trying to figure out myself. Um, <laughs> Me too, so, so don't I, worry. Yeah, and I, yeah, that's something I've sort of learned in the world of like Instagram creators is like you're constantly sort of evolving and figuring out what direction and Everybody a lot like. of are shaped by like your community and and what people are are like responding to and interested in learning about from you. Um, I think that one thing I've mentioned is that I do want to take some of the work off of Instagram. I think like it's hard there are limitations to teaching about these topics on social media and I try to get creative with how to address those limitations but like at the end of the day they're still there and Instagram is you know there to make money and like they're not really there to like be an educational platform for others. Um, So I think one of those visions is finding a way to take some of the work off of Instagram and still having resources on Instagram because I think super accessible like free educational content I think is like is awesome and I think a lot of people are using the platform in that way, but I would also like to, I don't know, like put it on a different website or platform where there could be more space for discussion, more space to just dive deeper into these topics. Um, I think another one too, is just I wanna be really mindful about how I'm using my platform as it grows. Uh, So obviously I'm biracial and black and so there's a lot of privilege that comes with being light skinned, for example, with having the ability to pass as like racially ambiguous. Um, I am college educated, I have a lot of privilege. And so I want to make sure that I'm using my platform in a way that also amplifies other black voices that are different from mine, um, especially those with like a smaller platform right now that could potentially grow through amplification. So that's something I'm trying to do right now for black history month. um, And just something I want to continue to be thoughtful about of like how I'm taking up space in the world of sort of education and in the realm of anti-racism and allyship. Um, I always try to make sure I'm not like speaking you know, for every black person, which is never the case. Um, And I think it's important to really highlight different perspectives, especially those that are different from my own. So those are two things I'm thinking about right now. Um, And yeah, constantly trying to figure out the balance between like my full-time job and Instagram. I love what I do at my full-time job, and that's really important to me. So just kind of a constant balance between prioritizing this work and prioritizing the work I'm doing at Rivet School. It's a never-ending battle, <laughs> and you know what you said—like a creator
0: constantly evolving, no matter what. Constantly mm-hmm. thinking about like what's next, what could I be doing? Like where, where am I going to? And we never have those answers as creators because new right. platforms arise every day. Like no one would have thought TikTok was going to be a thing right, right now. Right. Clubhouse, whatever Clubhouse, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm still so confused by it, but again. It's being adaptable and figuring it out. Something I'm working on. Um, but I think for a- another thing that I like to try to provide in this space is, you know, majority of my listeners, if I base it off of the people who follow me on Instagram, obviously this isn't mm-hmm. built into our Instagram demographics, but I can see people's profile pictures when they do Right, right. It's safe to say majority of my audience is white and female. I know female, but majority is white. Um, I always like to provide this space for someone who is a black or person of color specifically talking on this topic Mm -hmm. to reach these listeners who are specifically white females, hopefully interested in doing this work. Is there anything that you want to make sure you get across to them throughout this? Like Any main points, one, two, three, however many you want, that you want to make sure they walk away with?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, I think I would say two main points. The first we've already talked about, which is think about and maybe just do some reflecting on like how much of your allyship or your path to allyship has been com- composed of learning and how much has actually been action. Um, and I think like when you think about the actions that you can take in as, as an ally, like you mentioned, a lot of them aren't comfortable or easy or like fun to do um, a lot of them have to do with, like, sort of giving up power that you hold, whether that's, like, social status or money or, like, a position at work. True allyship requires sacrifice, and so I think it's important when you're taking stock of where you've been and where you're hoping to go to sort of do some reflecting and think through the um, sort of the breakdown of what your work has been focused on over the past however many months or years you've been working on on being a better ally. I think second is that um, it can be, like you mentioned Overwhelming of like where to start. There are so many different platforms and and um, resources and books and people to follow, and I think it can feel overwhelming. Like, am I doing enough, or is this the right thing to be doing? And I think a good way to break it down is to think uh, what you're doing, sort of at the individual level, at the interpersonal level, and then at the structural level. So, and 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 obviously in terms of allyship. So, at the individual level, things like working through your implicit biases taking the time to reflect, journal, et cetera, really work through these things that are very deep-seated, not conscious, um, that internalized racism that we all have living in a racist and white supremacist society. Interpersonal is thinking about how racism might show up, again, unintentionally in your interpersonal um, interactions or relationships with people. And then structural would be things like, you know, voting, protesting, organizing, using your power where you work um, or where you go to school to advance anti-racism. When you think about doing things across the spectrum like that, it becomes a little bit easier to contextualize, like, what it looks like to really be truly acting in allyship. When you think about you can do things individually, interpersonally, and structurally, and when you combine those three areas of focus, that is when it becomes sort of enough. And obviously, you can always be doing more, but... Um, that's kind of a good way to think oh looks like maybe I've mostly been doing structural work like mostly I've been making sure I vote and and phone banking and protesting but I haven't done as much personal reflection or maybe it's the other way around Um, and taking stock of that as well can help you prioritize where you want to spend your time moving forward.
0: Thank you so much because that verbalized so perfectly points that I feel are necessary to get across. And I think it's very interesting because I think almost structurally, it's the easiest to quote unquote, do the work. Um, you know, you can make sure you get out there and vote, you can attend protests, you can do those things. It's, I think the easiest box to check personally as a white person, because I think it takes less emotion. And I think the, um, interpersonal, and I'm sorry, what was the correct term for the first one?
1: Individual. Individual. Individual and interpersonal, yeah. Yeah,
0: I think the individual of like actually reflecting on your past brings up a lot of uncomfortable feelings about Mm -hmm. yourself. And so I do think that's maybe difficult, but I think interpersonal is where people struggle the most. And that I think is honestly one of the main areas that you can easily, like you have access to doing that work All the time. Mm -hmm, And I think it's where we as white people struggle the most because I think back on my life of, you know, I've been surrounded by white people my entire life. I come from a very privileged financially background. I lived in a very white town. I went to a very white school for high school and college. Um, Majority of my friends are all white. So I grew up in this very white world. And there were so many times. That I did not act in allyship by hearing, you know, I would always, I would never consider myself a racist, but I wasn't an anti racist in the sense mm-hmm. that I would stand by and hear people say things and like not call them out and just like do that awkward laugh, like, uh, right. like, how do I get out of this situation? Like, I feel uncomfortable, but oh my God, I'm not gonna call this person out. And I think that's honestly what white people struggle with the most, but that yeah. makes the most change because those people then are gonna be like, Fuck, I shouldn't be saying that. Or, like, yeah. you know, maybe best worst case scenario, they're like, okay, well, I'm just not going to say it around you anymore. But best case scenarios, they actually then learn and they realize that they shouldn't be saying these things or they shouldn't be doing these things. And so I think that has the most like immediate impact mm-hmm. and where a lot of us white people should spend time focusing on that we easily ignore because it is the most uncomfortable.
1: Yes, that's I literally just did a post about that today. The concept of white solidarity, which is not calling out racism that you witness just to sort of avoid any uh, tension, awkwardness, etc. So like somebody says the N word around you and you're like, act like you don't hear it, you know, right. or, or your grandpa says a racist joke at the dinner table, but nobody says anything because it's like, he's older oh, and he's, he's older old. from the era, and we it awkward, you know, we don't want to ruin the dinner. Those are, like you said, those moments are actually really vital in upholding white supremacy. And so to be an active disruptor is sort of that interpersonal allyship that's so important and it's so hard because it's going to be awkward People might get mad at you. They might make fun of you. They might stop talking to you. But those things, again, like you said, combined with the structural and the individual are what makes change. And it's clear because like when Obama was president, a black man was president, there was still clearly rampant racism in the country. It was still happening interpersonally. And just because somebody voted for a black person does not mean that they had done the work interpersonally or individually. And so it has to happen at all the levels for racism to truly be addressed in its its totality
0: definitely and you know you use the perfect example it's like it's having the conversations with your family members especially those of older generations that are definitely uncomfortable i'm not going to lie like i'm fortunate where the conversations i've had have not reached levels of nearly what i know other people deal with because my family is very aligned on this educational journey however it's still so important to have those conversations because also you're probably more likely to get through to that person absolutely. Then, not even to say that that type of person would be someone who's consuming your type of content or like an anti-racist podcast to begin with, but you have the connection with that person to try to get through to them. And I think that's even more why it's so important to be having those conversations. So I totally agree. I really, you know, I even had a person DM me the other day calling me out because they thought, I, I use the term NGL for not going to lie on my story. And I guess she thought, I don't know if there's another, I don't, I don't know if there's another, I think
1: there's one, but, um,
0: <laughs> but she thought I was using it in like an N word context. And she yeah. sent me a DM being like, Cameron, absolutely not. You cannot say this. And I was like, when I'm so confused, I was saying not going to lie. And she was like, Oh my God, thank God. I thought you were saying something else. And I was like, you know what? Thank you for calling me out. Like, I love that we have a community that would DM me and be yeah. like, bitch, no, like that's important. Um, yeah. So uh, we cleared the air, but I
1: was also like, thank <laughs> you for doing that because. Yeah. To have, the need- sp- like, to have that be a, a possibility if it was ever necessary, you know, to have a community right. that holds you accountable. And, and that like extends off of Instagram, obviously to be surrounded by people that hold each other accountable and know that they can hold each other accountable without repercussions, like without making it, maybe it will be awkward, but you know it like doesn't jeopardize your friendship or your relationship with a family member. Um, and I think those spaces are the ones that are most productive where there's no like shaming or guilting for getting something wrong because typically if you're trying to become a better anti-racism ally, you are doing things accidentally. And like you've mentioned, that's how you learn on the journey. And so to have people who hold you accountable, honestly, you know, directly, but without any sort of shame, I think is, is really helpful.
0: Totally. And it can be very simple of like, I love you, but you can't say that like, and this is why. Yeah. Um, and even though my family's very aligned on this journey, I've said that, you know, generationally, I do think that we've been just raised differently. And there are times where you still have to, no matter whether someone's aligned with you or not be like, no, we can't yeah. do that anymore. Um, so thank you so much for sharing all of this. I, we haven't talked about food at all, but I do close by asking, what would be the three ways to your heart through food? You can be as oh specific gosh. or generic as you would like.
1: Wow, wow. Um, okay, I don't know if this counts as food, but I'm drinking an iced coffee right now and my boyfriend makes it me can't. an iced coffee every morning throughout all of quarantine. He'll deliver it to my office sometime between the hours of 10 a.m. and 11 a.m., <laughs> To my office, meaning like where I'm working from Your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, um, I think that is very sweet and I would like that to continue even post-COVID. Um, I think second is pizza. I had a I had a nickname in high school, which was Nora being pizza queen. I will eat any type of pizza, all pizza. I love it. I'm from Chicago. I love deep dish pizza, but Little Caesars $5 pizza, any of it, if it's present, I'm happy. Um, I think third little bit more general. I love a dinner party setting. I love being cooked for and cooking with others. I think that's like such a fun way to like build community and relationships. Um, so if there is cooking together involved or if I'm being served food, I am very, very happy. And that is a, a clear and direct way to my heart. It's honestly what I am struggling with the most during COVID.
0: Like, I just want to be at a table with all of my people enjoying a meal, some wine, like getting that perfect tipsy drunk and eating delicious food and laughing. Like Joe and I cooked dinner last night and he's always like, it's just so wild how long it takes to cook dinner. And then we eat it in 10 minutes. I'm like, but usually like if we're with people that 10 minutes an experience.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: It's just because it's just the two of us. Like, Okay.
1: (laughs) let's eat and then watch a movie. It's very different. <laughs> that's, I think that's the one thing I've been thinking of the most during the pandemic is like, I can't wait to have an amazing dinner party or go to one. Totally agree. So for everyone
0: who's listening, who wants more of your content, where should they follow you?
1: You can follow me at Nora J Maxwell on Instagram. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for having me too. This has been so fun to talk this through with you.
0: Thank you so much for joining everyone. All of that will be in the show notes. Make sure you check out Nora. Her content's incredible, but I highly recommend if you're a new follower of her page going through her highlights, you do a really, really good. I'm like so impressed by the organization of your highlights because mine are all over the fucking place. (laughs) She does a really good job of organizing them and the stories are just very well done. So thank you for the work you're doing. People. I hope you enjoy her content. I know you will. And I just am so happy to have found you.
1: Thank you so much. This was so fun.
0: Hi, guys. I am a little nervous because there is construction going on in our apartment building. And, you know, every time I try to podcast record, there is just insane drilling. So we'll see if we can get through this. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as I did. I'm so grateful to have been introduced to Nora and I thought she was a truly incredible guest and I found was a very educational episode and I think really helpful for myself and also hopefully for this community to learn more and then also like unpack the work that you're doing and assess it and like figure out what next steps you want to take or how you can be doing more work or just more impactful work. Um, I do want to quickly mention something that I talked about on my Instagram stories and a conversation I had with her off air and that's on implicit bias. And obviously... You know, I I said this on my Instagram stories and this brings up a lot of white fragility for people and I don't want you to feel guilty when I say this if you've partake and or like are now noticing that you've done this because guilt isn't really an action that I think sparks anything. I would say acknowledging that you might be doing this and then changing the behavior is the best thing to do and also like unfortunately, the society that majority of us white people were raised in that is a white supremacist world like inherently encourages implicit bias so it's no surprise unfortunately if you are partaking in this it's just once you become aware of it changing the behavior and if you don't know what i'm talking about in general regarding implicit bias i'm gonna link in the show notes a study and now i'm forgetting who did the study i want to say it was harvard but i could be wrong um And it'll teach you way more about implicit bias. And there's also a test you can take just to like get your own gauge your own biases that you might hold. But one that I've been finding very interesting to observe as a podcast host is that I can see the number of downloads for every episode on the back end, obviously. And, you know, there are obviously some outliers like Joe is an outlier episode. My pregnancy is an outlier episode. A few guests who are like really well known are outliers. But if I remove those outliers and I look at all of the other guests, there is a difference between white guests and BIPOC guests in the amount of listens. And I think that right there shows that even though this community is you know, educated, open, like striving for change, wanting to have these conversations, we do hold an implicit bias. And I had a lot of conversations over DM and some people were like, I don't even know where would I see the person that's the guest? Like, I just see it on my podcast app and that's fine. That's like, then you might not. Um, but I mean more like if you're seeing the trailers I'm posting that have a headshot of someone and you're deciding, oh, I want to listen to that episode or, oh, I'll skip this one. And it might be without you even acknowledging it or recognizing or being aware of it because of their skin color. And that's implicit bias. And a lot of people actually DM'd me, being like, holy fuck, I never realized I was doing this, but you're 110% right. I have been doing this without noticing it. So I just want to bring it to people's attention and, you know, just take the time to assess are you someone that has been doing this? If you are, you know, don't beat yourself up, but change the behavior moving forward. So that was one topic I wanted to cover. And then the second topic that I feel like I could do a whole episode on is. My relationship with finances. And I've been talking about this on Instagram also, but it's just too long to unpack on Instagram stories, especially because Instagram like cuts me off after four stories and I have to re like type out all the captions and then record again. And it's just, it really ruins my flow. I also just think I'd have a thousand stories up and it'd be annoying. So we're going to have the conversation here. I shared on my Instagram the other day that I am starting to realize I have a very, interesting and complex relationship with finance, finances. And I'm really trying to unpack it. And I'm working on it with my therapist. I'm having plenty of conversations in my personal life, especially with Joe. And I think it's at the forefront right now for me because things are changing in our life. We're about to embark on a very expensive life change that is becoming apparent. And... I'm starting to realize how much your upbringing has an impact on your relationship with finances. And I don't even mean like what type of financial situation you came from, but more like how did your parents handle their finances? How did your parents talk about finances? Like what were their behaviors and relationships with financial stuff like and how did that then impact you and your thoughts and you as an adult. And so when I said this on my stories, I mentioned I have no problem swiping my credit card for like the under a hundred items, for instance, like, you know, my Amazon purchases that are just like, oh, I need this. I'll just buy it or grocery trips or like random pieces of clothing. But the large investments make me feel sick to my stomach. And This conversation sparks a lot, a lot of opinions for people. And it's something that I feel uncomfortable discussing on such a large platform because I realize the privilege I hold and that doesn't change my emotions towards my finances. They're still warranted and I still hold them. However, I do come from a financially privileged place and it triggers a lot of people for me to be talking about this when that's the case, hence the insanely awful DMs I received the other day. Um, So for me, when I shared that, a lot of people said that they could relate. And when I did the comment box of like, you know, what would be the adjectives you would use to describe your relationship with finances? It seems like a lot of us are in the same boat. Some people feel like they have a great relationship and I really admire you on that. Um, And you feel stable and confident about it and you know like you're in a great place and that's incredible but I think majority of us feel as if um we're always behind in a way which is a toxic behavior and thought process but I I really think it's unfortunately realistic for a lot of us um or just like I'll never know what is quote-unquote enough and large investments really freak me out and so Another thing I'm taking away from all this is that quite literally everyone that responded said so much of it, well, when I was a kid or well, my parents, just like further proving that I think our childhood has such an impact on our relationship with finances and why Joe and I are having these conversations. So I'm gonna share like, I guess my thought process. I don't have the answers. So obviously this is like an extension of my therapy session. Um, For me, I came from a childhood and like, this feels so weird for me to say, but like, I really don't think I was ever denied anything. Like if I, if we wanted something, we were able to get it. And I realize that's a massive privilege and I feel so uncomfortable saying it, but it's the reality. And, you know, my mom is a person who lives in abundance and, you know, we still struggle with this even now, like just being like, I don't need all these things, mom, but like, We have different mentalities on like a more is more on her end. And for me, like less is more. Um, And I feel like so much changed for me when I left the corporate world. And just, sorry, backtracking back to childhood, we were always in a comfortable place that like it was never really discussed. And I feel like I... Never really knew the value of a dollar. And there's this is not to blame my parents whatsoever because they worked their fucking asses off to get to a place to provide for their family and their children. And if I had the ability to do that for my kids, I'm sure I would have as well. So, like, it's so difficult because I don't, there's no one to blame for any of this. They were doing what, of course, like, why wouldn't they do this? I think all parents would want to do that if they're able to. And With that, like, you know, I never really had jobs growing up. I I just don't feel like I really understood the value of a dollar. And when I graduated from college and started working at J.P. Morgan, I was making an absurd salary for my age. And there was always this pressure that I felt of like, well, I've been raised a certain way and I want to continue my life living in that way. Like, I don't want to not be able to do the things that I feel so used to doing. Um, And I know a lot of people DM'd me feeling that they felt the same way of like, there's this weird pressure to make sure that you obtain a certain lifestyle that you once had. And like, it's not always feasible at all. Um, And a lot of people have a different relationship where it's like, I wanna have such a better lifestyle than I had growing up. And there's pressure on that side too. There's pressure on all sides. And I also think for me, I felt this pressure and I think back to a moment when I was young and my soccer coach said this to me and I don't think I realized at the time how impactful it was, um, but it clearly fucked up some of my brain space. Um, But he made a comment once about being like, you know, I was on a team. Charlie's barking. Hold, please. Okay, that took longer than I thought. So now I'm concerned that I'm going to lose my train of thought from where I was. But basically... At a young age, my coach told me at one point, like we were all doing something. I forget the context, but he was basically like, well, Cameron, you'll never understand hard work because you're not blue collar. And I was like, I was so young. I was like, what the fuck is blue collar even mean? Um, you know, obviously as an adult now looking at that, I'm like, okay, you should have never said that to a child. Like that was something you were dealing with, but It did kind of spark everything in when I can reflect back. Like, I definitely feel I have a chip on my shoulder. And I think that this comes from two different sides. You know, I think a lot of people who maybe don't come from a privileged financial background feel like they have to prove themselves that they deserve to be somewhere. I can't speak to that, but I've heard of people talking about that chip on their shoulder. And I feel like from the other side, I had a chip on my shoulder where because i came from a financial financially privileged background i felt i always had to prove that i worked hard and that i was deserving of things and that i wasn't just like skating by on my parents coattails and that you know i was in a room because i deserved to be in a room because i worked hard not just because my parents money got me there And I think with that comes like a ton of guilt for me. And again, I don't think guilt is a helpful emotion, but like that's the only term I can think of to pinpoint it. And so it's really interesting to unpack later in my life when I quit J.P. Morgan because I had obviously a huge pay cut when I quit. Um, I mean, I had no idea how much money I was going to make. I think I ended up, if I look back on like that first year, I made a quarter of what I was making at JP. So obviously it was a big life change. Um, But I think with that, there was so much deep rooted in me that tied success to financial means and how much I was making. And with that, I started sharing publicly and I started to notice like, oh, wow, I definitely was raised a different way than a lot of people. And I don't think that was ever really brought to my attention, to be totally honest, because I live in a privileged bubble of sorts, you know, like a lot of my friends come from financially privileged backgrounds. And so I never felt any quote unquote different. And when I started to share so publicly, not that messages were mean per se, but just like asking questions and pointing things out and curious. And I started to notice like, oh, maybe this isn't normal and then guilt coming with that. And, you know, I've always tried to be very upfront of like how my parents have helped me and what they've paid for. But I also think there's this misunderstanding that like they pay for my entire life, which is very much not true. Um, and again, I think that that all ties into me feeling like I have to prove how hard I work because I want people to know that I'm deserving of things. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm putting in the work. It's not just that they're giving me these things. And again, this isn't a healthy relationship. I don't think because who's to say that like hard work should even equal respect. It, it should. I, I can't figure out the terminology. Not that it should, but like, again, why do I pride myself so much on like the work and that form of proof? And between the massive salary cut and me being kind of like uncomfortable with that and still constantly tying my success to that amount of money no matter how much money i make now still like January and February were the top two performing months I've ever had in Freckled Foodie and I'm so proud of it but still in my mind I'm like well would I be making more if I was still at JP Morgan like if I had stayed trajectory wise how much would I be making now and that's so unhealthy for me to do and I'm really trying to stop but that doesn't mean that's still not happening um And so there's that, there's then the public sharing, there's then just a feeling of now realizing the importance of a dollar and feeling guilt over what I have been given and guilt over how easy things have been because I know things are not easy for others. And then feeling guilt over feeling guilt. And that's the weirdest one for me because it's like, shut the fuck up. Like, why are you making money an issue? If it's not an issue, like, why are you even doing this? But that doesn't change the mental mind fuck that it is. So again, I don't think clearly I don't have any of the answers. And I feel like I just rambled in a therapy session for you all. But these are the thoughts that I'm kind of unpacking. And it's very interesting to have the conversation with Joe because I think he's one of, I think in my life, he has the best relationship with finances of people I know. He is not a big spender at all. He's very frugal. However, he feels comfortable with large investments because he's in a place to be able to make those investments. And he realizes that not all of them, but when he wants to and decides to, like they are justified and he's okay with that. And... I think he has a lot of respect for a dollar and what it takes to earn a dollar. And we've been talking about how we want to instill these things in our children. And obviously you want to provide for your children. You want to give them the world. However, I also want them to realize that like shit isn't just handed to them and they do have to work for things. And, you know, people come from very different circumstances and how can you instill at a young age saving and donating and then deciding what's worth spending on. So it's conversations we're having. I just feel like it's a conversation we're always going to have, probably. I think a lot of us are having these conversations for a very long time. So that's where I stand right now. Um, I hope in any way this was beneficial for someone who is potentially feeling these same things. I wish I had the answers for us all. I just think the best thing we can do is do the internal personal work of like, why do I feel these emotions when these things come up? You know, I never think the answer is ignoring your finances. That can get you in a ton of trouble. Um, So I know a lot, some people said they have the mindset of just like, you know, turn the other way and like hope it's okay. And that can get you in some deep, dark holes. So even though it makes you uncomfortable and icky and like weird feeling, I think it's a really important discussion to have with your significant other close people in your life or yourself and really assess like, where am I? What am I capable of spending right now? Where do I want to be? You know, what am I capable of donating right now? How can I spend my time and money the most wisely? So that's where I'm at. This was such a long closing. So a long episode in general. I love you guys. DM me your thoughts. Hopefully this was helpful. Have a wonderful weekend and stay tuned for next week's episode. You guys, thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Freckled Foodie and Friends. It really means the world to me. It means more to me than you could ever know. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please head over to wherever you consume your podcast and rate and or review the show. It not only helps the show's growth, but it really makes my day when I go through and read all of the reviews. If you aren't already, please follow along over on Instagram at Freckled Foodie for my way to access active channel and at ffn friends pod for more information on the podcast i hope you have a wonderful day and i can't wait to give you the next episode